All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Jeremiah chapter 50, where Paul was reading for us earlier. We finished the book of Jeremiah last Wednesday. This section that we're diving into is unique in that it uh, deals with the judgment of, of uh, nine surrounding uh, countries around Judah and Jerusalem. And the instrument that God used to bring these judgments was Babylon. So it's interesting to me that 50 and 51 are now God's judgment against Babylon itself. So let's pick it up in verse 38, chapter 50. A drought is against her waters. They will be dried up. For it is a land of carved images and they are insane with their idols. Therefore, the wild desert beast shall dwell there with the jackal, and the ostrich will dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. Behold, a people shall come from the north, a great nation, and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They will hold bow and the lance. They're cruel. They shall not show any mercy. Uh, their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them. His hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him. Pangs as a woman in childbirth. Behold, he will come up like a lion from the flooding of the Jordan against the inhabitants of the the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will array me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me. Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purpose that he has purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their habitation desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations." The irony of, um, of the judgment of, of Babylon is that God told Jeremiah, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as my instrument. Don't fight against them. Just um, capitulate and surrender and give yourself up because the next 70 years you're going to be in Babylon. In Jeremiah 51:24. It says, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of the Chaldeans for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. So even though he uses Babylon to destroy Egypt and Moab and Eden and Ammon and Jerusalem, uh, that was God's instrument. Now he's holding him accountable for doing just that against, against Judah. And so this morning, I've entitled this Babylon, a one world religion, past, past, present, and future. And this is part one. Because we're going to be in 
um, 17 and 18, where we'll read about a one world religion. And then next week, we'll take chapter 18, and we'll talk about a one world government. But let's look at Babylon's past, and to do that, we need to turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. And as you're turning after the flood, um, the sons of Noah, one of them being Cush, it's it's the son of Cush that I'm interested in. In verse 8, it tells us that Cush begot Nimrod. And Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. Uh, Some people believe he was a giant. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So he was the one first uh, involved with being the king over the first Babel. And then if you go to chapter 11, the first nine verses, <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language, one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, make them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. And he said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had made. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And that is what they began to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from him. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. So the first reference we have of Babylon, getting its word Babel, um, everybody understood everybody, and then the Lord uh, just made up all these other languages and trying to put myself in the picture. I suppose you're going around babbling to somebody. That's where we get the term babbling. And all of a sudden you run across somebody that that actually understands you. So you start hanging out with that person. And then you meet another person. And it was through this that we have the nations dispersed. Of course, people hung out with people that they could understand. And we have the nations being birthed. I'm always amused when they discover another uh, dinosaur bone and they keep dating it to 20 billion years ago. <laughs> There's no real ar- archaeological proof that they can come up with that doesn't go any farther back than the Egyptian empire. And that was the first empire. And we're going to talk about all seven of them this morning. But the first one was the Egyptians, um, then the Assyrians, 
And then the Babylonian kingdom, which is what we're studying this morning, their judgment and their fall. And then after that, the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks with Alexander the Great, we'll mention him this morning. Then Rome, at six so far. And then um, one yet future that's to come, and that will make seven. I think that's interesting, the number of completion. So when all is said and done, planet Earth will have had after it's all said and done, before we enter into the millennial kingdom age, seven empires that have ruled the world. Now, others have tried. Hitler tried. Mussolini tried. Napoleon tried. And there's been other people. Alexander the Great tried. He actually died in Babylon. And uh, yet, they didn't have a total conquest of the entire world. The nations that I mentioned did. So here we have, I'm going to put up, give you an idea of the size, and I'll talk a little bit about the dimensions of Babylon. So if we can put that on the screen, city of Babylon, you'll see it has a river running right through it. That would be the Euphrates. A couple hundred thousand people easily could live within the walls of uh, Babylon. Um, The city itself had two walls that surrounded the entire city. The inner wall was 21 feet thick. That's amazing to me. And then every 60 feet, there would be a tower. So um, the, the outer wall was 11 feet thick. And so you had these double walls. The walls were 300 feet tall. And um, the watchtowers actually extended up to 420 feet. And, um, you know, just imagine that in my mind. You think of a radio tower and how tall that actually is and how secure they must have felt. Then they had this water channel moat that as Euphrates came in, they made this moat outside the outer wall and it went all the way around the city. So to say that... um, They were secure would be a total understatement. The night that Babylon fell, they were so secure, even though the the Medo-Persian Empire was laying siege to the city, they, they, they could have cared less. Matter of fact, they were having a party the night that it fell. And with that, I also want to mention that um, in its grandeur, Nebuchadnezzar, it was one of the most incredible structures that man had ever built. As a matter of fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, said that Nebuchadnezzar's wife came from the country where there was hills and rolling gardens, and so he created this water system through this layers of, of um, tears that were called the Hanging Gardens. Of course, nobody really knows what they look like, but the ancient historian says it was one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Turn, if, if you would, please, to um, Daniel chapter 5. And um, while you're turning, I want to go back and quote one verse from, from uh, our text this morning. Verse 43, we read it, it says, The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble, anguish has taken hold of him, pains as a woman in childbirth. 
So now we're gonna show exactly more detail what Jeremiah is talking about. If you're in chapter five, the king's name is Belshazzar. He would be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He is on the throne, evidently, while his father is out at war. And picking it up, it says, Belshazzar, the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. You have to have a pretty big room, wouldn't you say, to have room for a thousand people. And they drank wine in the presence of the thousands, and while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which were his father Nebuchadnezzar, the word father there, they don't have a word in Hebrew for grandfather. You'll notice there's a little mark there. And his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, um, had taken from Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So now they're mocking the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought in the gold vessel that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and the lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the God of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now right in the middle of the shindig in this party, showing off the spoils from the temple in Jerusalem, out of nowhere, verse five, a hand appears. Out of the middle of nowhere. Now when we read in Jeremiah 50 that the king's countenance changes and all of a sudden he feels like he's a woman in labor pain and he's in anguish, this is why. And it says the hand appeared and wrote outside the lampstand on the plaster of the wall, the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote and the king's countenance changed. Well, I bet it did. He went from party routine to being totally freaked out. He had to be. And his thoughts troubled him so that his joints of his hips were loosed. That's another way of saying he filled his drawers. (laughs) And his knees knocked against each other. Again, Jeremiah foretold us that he would... The king cried with a loud voice to bring in all the the wise men, the soothsayers, and uh, whoever could read what was on the wall, he'd give them a third of the kingdom. Now this is why we know that he is second, and his father would have been first, and now he's willing to give away another third. But they couldn't do it. Um, They all came in, they looked at it, and um, only then somebody whispered in an ear about Daniel. So they bring in Daniel, and Daniel basically tells them, I'm nobody special, but there is a God in heaven that um, tells dreams. He said, you should know better, by the way, Belshazzar, he says, you're not, um, you're not anything like your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. When God dealt with him, he repented. And he gave his testimony. All of Daniel 4 is a testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the last verse of chapter 4 says, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. And he said, you should have learned from your grandfather. And you didn't. Instead, you're mocking the very God that your grandfather sings praise and glory and honor to. So picking it up in verse 24, um, the fingers of the hand were sent from him and the writing was written. And Daniel says, and this is the inscription that was written. 
It's many, many, or many, many, tekel, upharsin. And this is the interpretation of each word, many. God has numbered your days and finished it. In other words, your number's up, buddy. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wadding. You ain't anything like your grandfather. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now remember that because I'm going to come back to his place of prominence a little bit later. And that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about two years old. The Assyrian Empire fell in one night when they were laying siege to Jerusalem. One angel took out um, 180,000 or 150,000 men in one night. Sennacherib the king goes back to Assyria and his sons kill him. And you have an empire, God bless you, have an empire wiped out in one night. We have the same thing happening here. Because while they were having this party, the Lord says your number's up. And verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That night. And Darius the Mede took over. Well, what happened was, while they were mocking the God of Daniel, um, there was a general that had gone upstream from the Euphrates. Uh, The Euphrates um, flowed directly through Babylon, was diverted from its course, and that left an entry at each end for the warriors of their enemy to enter under the walls into the dry riverbed. The moat would have been all dry. And by this maneuver, they were able to appear suddenly in the streets and take the city by surprise. And you might say they didn't fire a shot. They just came in. They were totally caught off guard. And the general behind it, his name is Gorborus. He was able to invade Babylon. And um, the king that very night was his last night, just as Daniel said. Now, 16 days later, on October 29th, 539 B.C., Cyrus is going to enter the city. And I want you to see this. I want you to turn. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 44. And he's going to call Cyrus by name 140 years before the actual event takes place on October 29th, 539 BC. Now I was sure it was the works of Josephus that said Daniel met Cyrus. So yesterday I was studying and I got out the works of Josephus and I read it thoroughly, um, the fall of Babylon and Cyrus coming in, but it didn't make mention that Daniel was there to greet him. I read it somewhere and it makes sense to me because he had that place of prominence and he knew above everybody else that 70 years was determined upon the captivity of Babylon. Who better to address Cyrus? So I lean that way, it's historical. Um, The scriptures does not tell us it was Daniel, but let's read uh, chapter 44, verses 27 and 28, who says to the deep, dry up, 
be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, referring to the Euphrates, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, and even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation will be laid. Chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors. Once the men were in, they opened up the doors, and they all came in quickly. So that the gates will not be shut, I will go before you and make the crooked place straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze. I will cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and, I will, and hidden riches of the secret places that you may know that I am the Lord who call you by name am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have called you by your name. I have called you though you have not known me. I am the Lord, there is no other. There's a very important verse. There is no God besides me. So much for Allah. I will gird you though you may not know me. That you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there's none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other, for I form the light, created the darkness, I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now imagine, 16 days, here you have one of the greatest leaders in the world, Cyrus, sort of coming into town on October 29th, and my personal conviction, it was Daniel who met him there. And he took this book, the scroll of Isaiah, And so this was written 140 years ago. And God called your name, by name, 140 years ago. And he's telling you and giving you instructions on what to do. To let the people go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Question, did it happen? Yes, that's exactly what happened. And um, if you want more detail on that, Josephus gets into a lot of detail um, concerning that. So, you know, that's... What kind of a mind-blowing experience is that? My name is in the Bible, and somebody shows it to me 140 years later after the fact. It had to blow the guy away. And so that's pretty much um, the past of Babylon. The city did exist, um, not to its grandeur. It had been attacked throughout the years. You can go through the Medo-Persian Empire, but Alexander the Great, after he conquered the known world, um, died in Babylon. So that's the past. And um, um, today, present day, if you would go to Babylon after all these years, what did we read back here, uh, back in um, our text? It says, chapter 5039, it shall be inhabited no more forever, and um, nor shall it be given. No son of man shall dwell in it. So, let me show you a picture of what Babylon looks like today. This is present. We just left the past. Now we're going to present time. And if you would go 20 miles south of Baghdad, you would find these ruins. These are the ruins of Babylon. Most of the ruins are actually underneath 
the Euphrates, because remember, the Euphrates went right through the middle of town. Uh, One of our best trips to Israel is in 1991. It was the Gulf War. And Saddam Hussein, before that war, had spent millions of dollars trying to reclaim the glory of ancient Babylon. So he started a building project. And, um, and then he built this huge palace overlooking what he was building, spent millions of dollars doing this. And here's what it looks like, his attempt to rebuild Babylon before the war broke out. Now those walls do not look 300 feet tall to me. And basically what he did, it has special bricks put in with his name on it because he wanted to be Nebuchadnezzar. The glory of Babylon he wanted to recreate. Well, the Gulf War took care of that. I could have showed you a picture of our Marines taking the palace and then living there and making a basketball court out of one of the main chambers. It shows a basketball ring. And so the, the Gulf War, well, you know, they hung Saddam Hussein, and uh, the building project of Babylon ceased to exist because my Bible says it's never going to be inhabited again. And to this day, it is still, you can see that much of it, but nobody, nobody lives there. So that would be Babylon present. But the Bible says that there is going to be a Babylon future. This also intrigues me because we're, we're seeing things come full circle with Jerusalem becoming a nation 68 years ago, May 14th, 1948. Stage is set. But we're also going to see Babylon come back into the picture. And it amazes me that the Lord is bringing everything full circle to complete um, the, the setting the stage for a one-world religion and a one-world government. Now, before I go too far, there's some important dots that I need to connect concerning Nimrod, Babylon, and, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and to do that, I need you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter two, and we're gonna look at the Church of Pergamos. We'll look at Revelations two, of course, two and three, are the seven letters to the seven churches. I always like to point out whenever I'm in these chapters that the key to the book of Revelation is verse 19 of chapter one. John, write the things that you have seen, chapter one. Write the things that are, chapters two and three. And then the things which will take place after this, after the church. That's the key to the book of Revelation. Seven letters, the third letter is to Pergamos, Verse 12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What? Satan has a throne? And it's in Pergamos? That's exactly what it says. Whom I'm about to quote is a man named Frank A. Boyd. Um, He's a Bible teacher, Assembly of God, Springfield, back in the 60s. Um, I've had his book on Revelation for years. And I'm going to quote his take on Satan's throne being in Pergamos. 
He says the significance of the expression Satan's throne is discovered in the history of the Babylonian mysticism. Suffice to say here that Babylon, from the days of Nimrod, was the earthly focus point of Satan's system of religion. The Chaldean priests, or the Babylonian priests, when they were fleeing from the conquering Persians, so the night, remember that they fell, um, some of them just hightailed it, and they ran when um, the Medes and the Persians came in. And they, when they were running from the conquering Persians, they took refuge and they settled in Pergamos. And their worship consisted in the deification of the emperor. Annalus III was the king of Pergamos in 133 BC, was also priest of a cult and willed his title into the hands of the Romans The title of the Babylonian high priest, catch this, was Pontifus Maximus, or chief build, a bridge builder, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his host. Julius Caesar first assumed this royal priesthood under the Latin title Pontifus Maximus. Thus, divine hours were conferred upon Roman emperors and then later They were assumed by the popes. So let's connect the dots. Babylon Falls. Their occultic teachings ends up, these priests, they take refuge. I've been in Pergamos. I can't even begin to tell you what an incredibly beautiful place it is. They have an amphitheater that's built on this very, very steep. It's the steepest one I've ever been in. And the view from the top of it, all the seven churches are in what we would call modern-day Turkey, and they're all within 80 miles of each other. And so, but by far and away, Pergamos is, has the most grandeur. And um, the view from there is just breathtaking. And so they leave Babylon, they take with them where Satan's seat now dwells in Pergamos, and that goes from Pergamos and is passed down to Rome. And so we have Babylon, Pergamos, Rome. And that's how uh, the title uh, Pontifus Maximus, given to the emperors first of all, but then adopted by the popes themselves. Now, the future, we know that there's going to be a future Babylon because of Revelation 14. So that's where you need to turn next. Just like we know that the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians that there's going to be a temple that the Antichrist is going to sit in. So it also tells us that there's going to be a Babylon that is going to be rebuilt, not the ancient one. Remember, that one's not going to have anybody live in it. But in Revelation 14, we have three angels. And picking it up in verse 6, John says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. What's he doing? Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Angel, preaching the gospel. Do you know that God has always had a witness of his existence? That's that's why he chose Abraham. Abraham 
became the Jewish nation, and he entrusted them with the oracles of God, the scriptures. What were they? They were a living witness. They were supposed to be. They failed miserably. They were a living witness that there's a God in heaven that's created all things. They were the witness in the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, the Bible says that the church, that you and I are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Good place for an amen. That's our job. We're, we're to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for this period of time, until the rapture happens, we are to be proclaiming the gospel and sharing the good news. But the time is coming when the fullness of time has come, the church is going to be taken out. And then what do we have happening? God always leaves a witness. Um, I believe that will be the beginning of the great tribulation period. And we find in Revelation 7, 144,000 Jews. They're not Jehovah Witnesses. We know they're Jews. The Holy Spirit gets very specific here. He says some 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Ephraim, and so on. And it names all of them, except Dan, and that's a different Bible study for another time. But then you have the two witnesses, Revelation 11. Now, God leaves a witness, and in Revelation 11, it actually tells us how long their witness is. 1,260 days, which is how long? Three and a half years. What happens after three and a half years? Well, they're killed by the Antichrist, and their bodies lie in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And then life comes back into them, and they're taken up into heaven. Now, no more witnesses. Oh, but wait, there is. Angels. What does he do? He preaches the everlasting gospel. And um, so God always has a witness. And this here is fulfilling. When the angel preaches the gospel, who, who does he preach it to? It says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, right? I believe this is fulfilling Matthew 24. A lot of people take Matthew 24 out of context, and they apply it to missionaries today. Let me quote it. Verse 13 says, but he that endures unto the end will be saved. So we're talking about people that have to hang in there until the end. That puts us in the tribulation period. The next verse says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end will come. Question, who's doing the preaching? Answer, the angel in Revelation 14. How do I know it covers the whole world? Because it says so. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Missionaries, especially those um, that hold to replacement theology or kingdom now theology, say that that's our job. We're fulfilling Matthew 24. No, we're not even coming close. Uh, Islam is far more effective at evangelism than Christianity is today. And if we think we're gonna Christianize the world, then you you got your head in the sand, (laughs) because that's not happening. So what will happen? Well, just exactly what the Bible says. God always has a witness. Old Testament Israel. New Testament, the church. Church is gone, 144,000. And Moses and Elijah who are killed, when they're killed, God still presents the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and then what? And then the end will come. It has to be during the tribulation. So let's go on as long as we're talking about these angels. Let's look at the next one. 
because it talks about Babylon. Another angel flying, verse nine. Uh, verse eight, and another angel fall, followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon becomes an influence, and when it says fornication, it means spiritual fornication, in the same way that when Jesus was talking to the church of Thyatira, he says, I have this against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to beguile my servants, and she has spiritual fornication. Well, the spiritual part of it is she was the gal responsible for bringing Baal worship into Israel, false doctrine into the teachings of, of, of the Old Testament. So what we have here is a city, and this city is responsible for this fornication, but she's going to fall. That tells me Babylon will be rebuilt, not the one that I showed you earlier, and it will be a religious center of the world. Now let's remind ourselves, connect the dots. Babylon, Pergamos, where Satan's throne is, from there on to Rome. So where is the heart of this false religion? Rome. And I'll prove it before we're we're done here, but let's finish and let's read the last one because there's one more angel, and this angel says in verse nine, then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, if anybody worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his head, he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and the person who takes this mark shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment, whose torment? The ones who took the mark. Ascends forever and ever. Question, how long is forever and ever? Answer, forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who receive the mark of his name. Is that clear? I mean, is anybody confused about what we just read? An angel flies and said, don't take the mark of the beast. Because if you do, you're identifying with him and you're actually worshiping him and um, you're gonna be tormented in the presence of the angels forever and ever and ever. So, why would anybody ever say that you can still be saved after taking the mark of the beast? And you're wondering, well, who would ever say that? I mean, the scriptures are about as clear as you can get here. Well, John MacArthur for one, Brandon House for two, Jimmy DeYoung, number three. All uh, widely known and respected Bible teachers. I'm quoting. The question is, if you're living in the tribulation period and you take the mark, in other words, you identify with the beast empire, will you still be able to be redeemed? And I think the answer to that is yes. That's John MacArthur. Brandon House interviewing Jimmy DeYoung Um, uh, both hold to the position that you can still be saved after you take the mark of the beast. The rationale, well, God is a God of salvation and redemption. Well, the only problem with that is you've just changed the word of God that clearly says otherwise. Good place for an amen. You don't add to and you don't take away from. 
And you don't let your emotions get in, in the way when the scriptures are perfectly clear that this should be a strong warning that these guys should be giving. Uh, anybody that's not saved and actually has to go through this period of time. All right, so let's turn to our One World Religion in chapter 17 and read the first four verses. And let me just say that as you look at chapter 17 and 18, that the tribulation is over. It is over after the last verse of chapter 16 with the last of the bold judgments. So chapter 17 is about a one world religious system that is in the tribulation period. And so is Revelation 18, which is a one world government. So this is not chronologically in order. 17 and 18 happened before chapter 16. Verse one says, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came, talked with me saying, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And a woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, or a filthiness of her doctrine, actually. And on her forehead a name was written saying, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and of the abominations of the entire world. Now here the angel, in showing this woman with her cup full of this abominations that have infected the entire world, calls her Mystery Babylon. Therein, connecting it way back to Nimrod, all the way through the, the Babylonian priest to the night it fell, They went to Pergamos, where Satan's seat is. They eventually end up with Rome, and we have Rome here being Mystery Babylon. And John is surprised. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I I marveled with great amazement. Why would John marvel? Because it's supposed to be the church, and you're killing Christians. Gang, Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Most, most of it has to do with after the Reformation. Um, so many Christians would not compromise with, with the Bible. They're called Anabaptists. And um, you can read story after story of the blood of the saints in Fox's Book of Martyrs because they would not submit to the false doctrine, what's called spiritual fornication here, of the Roman Catholic church and we have in chapter 17 this is the one world religion John is blown away by by what he has seen in in these verses and he was with great amazement that the church would be killing Christians but in history that's exactly what has happened now in Rome here's a question at this point and um, bringing it up to current events. The question is this, do we look 
at the papacy today and this pope in particular as encouraging and opening the doors for a one world religious system as talked about here. Simple question, is the pope himself encouraging a one world religion? Do you know that he calls Allah the same God as the God of the Bible? And so the denominational walls are coming down and lest you think that I'm here just to pick on Roman Catholicism this morning, I'm sad to say that this goes back to people um, like Chuck Colson, who I had so much respect for after he got saved with his prison ministry. But he launched with a Catholic priest something called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Um, and that was signed by 20 well-known leaders in the evangelical world and 20 well-known Roman Catholic le- leaders. Um, In other words, he's pretty much said the Reformation is over and we're all going to be one under one umbrella. And uh, unfortunately, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, we see this happening. And it breaks my heart to have to um, say what I'm about to say. Greg Laurie and, and Harvest America recently invited Calvary Chapel pastors to a pastor's brunch to connect and catch the vision of Azusa Now. I'm just curious, how many have heard of this outreach in in Southern California? Not many. It was the 110th anniversary of the birth of the modern Pentecostal, we call it the NAR movement, held this past April. Lou Engel of the the cultic uh, Bethel Reddings Church in California was kissing the feet of incoming Catholic dignitaries at the beginning of the event. Brian Broderson hosted something called Creation Fest over in Europe, which has all sorts of connections with Roman Catholicism. So at the highest level in our movement, we have the endorsement of uh, this Roman Catholicism. We just had Roger Oakland here for our prophecy conference. I invited Roger here for one reason. I heard him do a Bible study called The Road to Rome. And I called him and I said, I I believe you're on the cutting edge of what's happening in the church today. Will you come and present it? He said, sure. Well, he just wrote an article that I got yesterday. Uh, His ministry is called Understanding the Times. And here's the name of, of the article. I encourage you to be a Berean and check it out. His website, Understanding the Times. This is the title. The hijacking of the Calvary Chapel movement into the coming one world religion. In a million years, I never thought I would be saying what I just said. It's 11 pages long. The article can be read on the website. And um, um, Mary's track right here is available after this morning's message. It's called Beauty and the Beast, Revelation 17. It'll help give you some, uh, help you to be better equipped. We have those on the table outside. All right, let's go back and just, as we wind this up, look at the symbolism here. We have the woman. For sake of being repetitive, um, that's how we learn. The woman, Mystery Babylon, um, is Rome. Babylon, Pergamos, Rome. The beast is the Antichrist. The many waters is the Catholic Church over all the entire world. The seven kings that we made mention to earlier, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Grecian, 
it would appear that the sixth head that was in John's day is Rome. Rome fell in 476 AD, and yet Daniel tells us that there's gonna be one more. It'll make seven. I think that's interesting, because seven is the number of, of completion. So it appears that the seventh head is, is the one with ten horns and speaks of a future confederacy. We call it the revived Roman Empire. Let's look at the woman's fate, what happens to her. Well, we read in verse 18 and 17 that she's going to be destroyed and burned and uh, there will be nothing left of this city. And the one who does it is the beast himself. Now, why would he do that? Well, this is what Lucifer and Satan has always wanted. He wants to be worshipped by man, and he doesn't want any competition, and even though it's a false religious system, has to go. And so in, in Revelation, let's turn back to just a couple of pages, Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15. He will not have any competition when it comes to the area of worship. So we read in Revelation 13, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. This would be the false prophet. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was given power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. So, doesn't that remind you of uh, Nebuchadnezzar? Building an image, solid gold, either you bow down or you die. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Ben, of course, wouldn't bow down. They tried to kill him. They wouldn't cook. <laughs> the Lord delivered them from the fire. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, the day of the Lord, except there come a falling away first, and that man of son, sin being revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself all that is called God, so that he's worshipped, so that he goes as God sits in the temple, so we know the temple will be rebuilt, showing himself that he is God. This is what he's always wanted. He has to destroy the woman. The city of Rome is going to be destroyed. And I don't think that far away because I believe, as, as we see, that there's leaders in, our, in, our, in the church today that are making their way to Rome. If I was to say, who is America's pastor, who comes to mind? If you know, just say it out loud. Rick Warren. All right, let me show you a picture of Rick Warren. America's pastor making his way, instead of warning the church, instead of warning the church, look out church, we're living in the last days, and the thing that should be spoken from the pulpit is danger, danger, (laughs) and look out because this is where we're headed. Instead, we find even on Calvary chapels endorsing the movement and promoting it. I want to close it up this morning by something I stumbled across with the guys yesterday in men's prayer. Uh, let's tr- we're in Mark right now, and we read 7, 8, and 9. I want to go back to Mark, and I'll close with this verse and show you why 
this is important to talk about. And uh, next week we'll talk about the one world government. The setting uh, for Mark 7 is that the Pharisees were getting all over Jesus because um, they weren't washing their hands. And if you're a good Jew, you always wash your hands. As a matter of fact, they even have a very special technique in the way that they do it. When we're all done, they don't, they don't dry it with a towel. They, they just let it drip. You don't, can't touch anything. So pick it up in verse three of chapter seven. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Uh, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels, how it should be done their way. And then the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat their bread and they don't even wash their hands? And Jesus answered and said to them, well did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but in their heart they're far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching, notice, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. In other words, teaching as if it was the word of God, but it's not. It's the tradition of men. And laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers, and cups, and many such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever prophet you might have received from me is Corban, that is, dedicated to the temple. And you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. And this is the verse that I have underlined. Making the word of God of no effect. Can I say that again? By doing these traditions, it contradicts what the Bible teaches and therefore the word of God has no effect through your traditions which you have handed down and many such things you do. Well, what has Rome done that they've added to? Well, the list is the papacy. There was no papacy for the first 300 years. The worship of Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary, perpetual virginity of Mary, the assumption of Mary, Mary as co-redeemer, praying to Mary, petitioning and prayers to saints, the apostolic succession, infant baptism, seven sacraments, confession to a priest, purgatory, indulgences, equal authority of church and scripture. No, here it's trumped, just like the Pharisees. The word of God becomes no effect because of the very things that I'm reading to you right now. Religious artifacts to worship, the mass, last rites, church started in Rome. No, the church started a day of Pentecost. Good place for an amen. And they have, all these things were added after 
Babylon, Pergamos, Rome. What does the book of Revelation call them? Spiritual fornication. Traditions of men that trump the word of God and make the book that we love so much of no effect because they've replaced it with these. Dwight, you're being pretty hard on them. Church started in Rome, Peter was the first pope. No, I'm being equally hard on Calvary Chapel because we've fallen into the same thing. So don't think I'm just picking out one. In general, we see this across. So if I would close the Bible study this morning, it would be with a question. The Bible predicts a one world religion. Do we see signs of that in the world today? We absolutely do. What are we to do about it? Well, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as a matter of some is. Some people think, I don't need to go to church. And uh, they've checked out, I call them Lone Rangers. And uh, he says, don't do that, but exhort one another with love. And then he says, do it all the more, what's the rest of the verse? As you see the day approaching. Gang, do you see the day approaching? Well, then we're told what to do. And that's a good place to end the study. And that we never let anything trump this book. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for instruction in righteousness and doctrine. Don't need any other traditions. Amen? Amen. Stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us connect the dots. This first rebellious city called Babylon. And um, we could have confidence, Lord, that what you said is going to be, will be. And um, as we read earlier, you're speaking as though it's already happened. So Lord, help us warn, help us be able to explain these things to our, our loved ones so that they would just be amazed at the wonder of your word and the importance of holding it above every tradition. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.